Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to episode 67 of the Out of the Question podcast. Today is July 19th, 2019. Today's question may not have as easy an answer as some would think. So, Steve, here goes. Is God upset if we are rich? Mm, it's, a, it's a great question, and I think it gets to another question behind it, is what does God feel about people who have money, and what does the Scripture teach about finances? You know, there's a lot of perspectives on uh, wealth and riches, and in the church, unfortunately, to be a person of substance, to drive a Mercedes, might even be contrary to the gospel in some people's minds. Uh, I think today we're going to have a discussion that talks about the idea of prosperity, uh, the idea of God's promises, what it means to be faithful in our work. And so as we unpack those ideas, I think it's important for us to go to the scripture and allow God to speak and renew our view of money. And I think we'll need to define things like, is being rich the same as being wealthy? Is the balance sheet in your, on your, in your bank account, is that the sole determination if you're rich or not? That's right. So let's start off with, uh, with a verse from the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, and this is a quote from the 15th chapter. And the Lord says, There shall be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God giveth you, as an inheritance to possess, if only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God, to carefully observe all his commandment, which I am commanding you today. And so if I read this verse, and I tell you it's from Deuteronomy, you believe it. But if I were to put some false teeth in, slick my hair back, put on a brand new $500 suit, and say this exact same verse, in maybe modern day language, you might confuse me with, with Joel Osteen or Creflo Dollar or some other prosperity preacher, because I'm saying, if you obey God, then God will bless you. Uh, that's what the Lord says. That's what the Lord says, that those who are faithful to him, that there will be a, a blessing. In fact, the Lord's words here, there will be no poor among you. So how does it, Andrea, how do you think we, we rectify this idea of uh, prosperity preachers largely being uh, out of this world, um, but with the idea from the scriptures that God expects those who are obeying him to receive his blessing? Well, I think primarily we need to have a more solid view of what it means to obey God. And we sort of talked about this in previous podcasts where people give themselves a B plus and they figure, okay, I have a B plus, that's good enough. Whereas the command is to love God with all aspects of our being, our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, everything that we have. So if we have this sort of fuzzy view of what it means to be obedient, then you can just become a name it and claim it person. The Bible says it, I claim it. And therefore, if I don't have it, then is there something wrong with me or is there something wrong with God or does that promise not count anymore? Right. And both of those, as we've talked about in, in previous episodes, require us to have a kind of a future orientation. Even those who are in the, the name it, claim it thing you mentioned are looking for what God is doing in the future. 
and they're looking for what God might do in the next year, the next week, the next payday, right? And they're trying to, to work in their religious system. How do they control what God is doing? Uh, and that's really the great heresy and the great issue with prosperity preachers is they are not changing who they are, right? They're trying to manipulate through their actions, through their deeds, through their uh, magic pillows or oils or what have you, trying to manipulate the God of the future. Now, as reformational Christians who have read Calvin and who have read the great reformers, we know that God is sovereign over the future. And so for us to look to the future is not our attempt to manipulate it, but to acknowledge that God is the Lord over the future, that he has already won not just the spiritual battle against sin, but as good post-millennialists, right? We believe that he has won the battle over the world. And all of the things that Adam lost, including uh, the prosperity of the garden, are now being restored through Jesus' work. And so for us to be future-oriented requires us to see the goodness of creation being reborn in this world. So things like scarcity, right? The idea of limited resources, the idea of, of greed, the idea uh, of these various vices that we often associate with economic terms, the Bible and Jesus Christ are turning these upside down. But they're not doing it through our manipulation, but because God owns everything. So if we begin with the idea that God controls the future, and that all the earth belongs to the Lord, and that the Lord is making everything in the world good, plenteous, and beautiful, then we have to be prosperity-minded Christians. So to be a Reformed Christian who believes in the work of Christ over the world, and to be future-oriented, means that prosperity is the future not just of our salvation, but prosperity is the future of the earth. But there's a flip side that I think is equally wrong in saying that if you're truly holy, if somebody is really doing ministry, then there's no way that they should have extra. Marstuni used to talk about how people thought they were doing a really noble thing if they brought hand-me-downs to the pastor and his family. And if the pastor, perchance, had gone out and gotten himself a new car, there might be, well, now why does he have a new car? He doesn't really need a new car. And the, the benchmark or the, the standard by which they were judging, they certainly didn't hold themselves to that view. They went out and had new cars or they had new clothes. They didn't expect that they were going to clothe their children um, by going to the secondhand store. So if we don't have a view of wealth and richness in terms of where God has placed us with the abilities he's given us and not decide that having a lot is bad, or having a lot is good, or not having a lot is good, and or not having a lot is a uh, indication that you're really not following God. Well, yes, and I think that when you first get to this conversation uh, about should the pastor have means, or or should anybody in ministry? You know, I work at a Christian school, and there are a lot of teachers who who believe that well, this is a ministry, and we should be. Uh, good stewards and, and not expect to be compensated. Uh, and there are many ministries that behave that way. We, we ignore what the Bible says, that the worker is worthy of his wage. We ignore what the Bible says, that this is a, a calling, um, not just to poverty, but a calling to the glory of God. And so the primary issue, I think, is that we are struggling uh, with one of the big Ten Commandments, right? Uh, and, and I say this, that if you are 
accusing uh, your pastor uh, who's trying to feed his family, keep health insurance, uh, who's trying to you know keep their car, if you are not paying them um, their wage, and I say this, of course, as a pastor, but if you're not paying somebody what they're due, you're, you're breaking uh, God's command to not only pay the worker his wage, but you're also bearing false witness because God's standard is not that his people would receive the crumbs or that his religious leaders would receive the last. If you look at the Old Testament, the Levites got the first, right? The, the, the priests of the Old Testament were, were cared for and um, they lived pretty wonderfully on the, what the, the 10% that the Lord gave them. And it was the first fruits. It was uh, of all the people of Israel and God has always used that particular ministry in the Old Testament to provide for those leading. So there's never a time in the Old Testament where God's people are expected through serving him to go into slavery, to go into debt, or to go into poverty. In fact, it, whether you're looking at Abraham or Moses or any of the Old Testament patriarchs, salvation or, or deliverance from captivity, you, know, you look for Moses leading the people out of slavery into what? into a land of, of milk and honey, right? Abraham leading his traveling people out from desert areas of traveling people into a land of promise uh, where his children and his riches shall grow abundantly. So if deliverance in the Old Testament, uh, both for the people who are prophets and the people who are priests and the people who are God's covenant people is always into blessing, not into slavery or captivity, what principles uh, do we draw in the New Testament that would make it change that the Christian life would be one of slavery, slavery or poverty? Right. In Scripture, wealth, as I said earlier, doesn't always have a dollars and cents or how much gold you've accumulated. A wealthy man is a man with lots of children. And the whole idea of most Americans, I don't care where you are on the spectrum of your income, we're a very rich culture. And it's only when God's mandates aren't followed, when we decide we're going to do it better than God says or just disregard God says, that's why there's poverty. And so poverty isn't a given because, well, the, the people who have are stealing from the people who have not. It's more often than not that on a personal, family, church, state, educational, business levels, people are governed by a theology of greed and envy as opposed to work and service. That's right. Uh, there's a great resource that people should, should know about, uh, the Population Resource Institute. And a couple of years ago, they produced a bunch of short YouTube videos. You can still find these on, on YouTube. And... The Population Resource Institute talked about what are the leading causes of poverty in the world. Um, and so there's a couple myths that lots of Christians believe. One of those myths is that we're overpopulated, right? That the reason why poverty exists in Africa or why poverty exists in South America is because it's overpopulated and there's not enough resources to get around. Well, PRI, this group, demonstrated that the world is, is nowhere near overpopulated. And as Bible-believing Christians, we know that the command is to populate the earth, you know, go for and, and multiply and populate. And so the idea that overpopulation might be an excuse for poverty is not only wrong, but it's misguided. It's the exact opposite of what God commands. Now, the other excuse people give for poverty 
is, well, there's not enough food to go around to feed everybody. That's why there's poverty. There's scarcity in food supplies. And PRI talks about how today, under our current circumstances, we have more than enough food to feed twice the population that exists currently, which is crazy to think about. We have people all around the world who are starving, and yet we produce enough food to feed the world twice over. And so those are two excuses that people use to talk about why poverty exists. But the reality is, the reason why that food that's produced doesn't get to the people is because there are corrupt political structures, there are international political structures that prevent that food to be distributed correctly. People who break the law of God, who abhor God's standards, who use usury and taxation, tariffs, all of these uh, unbiblical ideas to prevent the equality of people and opportunity. And the strange thing is, it's the places where ideas like equality are fervently stressed, you know, socialist countries or dictatorship countries where the idea of poverty is most harshly known. I, I think you're making an excellent point because when you remove Jesus Christ from the discussion, when the Bible isn't a source that's reliable to go to, whether in the public sphere in terms of political debate or in terms of testimony in a court of law or even in the halls of academia, you are guaranteed to have this conflict of interests as opposed to a harmony of interests which the Bible puts forth. If every man works and as a result of his labor, he's compensated fairly as agreed upon, you won't have scarcity and you won't have this built-in envy that says the only reason I don't have anything is because you have something. And that just breeds civil discord, and we're seeing it today in our society, wrong reasons for observable realities will then lead people to say, well, everybody should have nothing as opposed to how can we all work hard to get more. That's right. They're, they distribute, distribute the populations according to the have and the have-nots, right? So you have this idea that all of the resources in a given time, country, place are limited, uh, zero-sum thinking. And this is the fruit of everything from Marx to the Bolsheviks who believe that everything that exists, money, power, is limited and needs to be controlled. And they produce this idea that the only way you can lift yourself up is if you steal a piece of that limited pie. But that's not how Christian history has ever worked. Christian history has always acknowledged that God is a God of abundance and prosperity. It's a God who has given us this earth as a gift to steward. And what you have just described, this idea of, of limited and scarcity, is the great consequence of these other political philosophies that have emerged in the last few centuries. You know, it reminds me of a story. Um, one of my daughters once, she wasn't very old. She was maybe eight or nine years old. And I'm not sure what she had heard. Maybe my husband and I were having a discussion about something. But she came to us with a brilliant idea. And she said, you know, Mom, wouldn't it be better if we were rich? <laughs> and we were like, wow, what an amazing idea. It would be better if we were rich. Yet, if you think about it, so many of us are rich. 
we always had a roof over our head. We always had food that we needed. Maybe we couldn't go ahead and get the most luxurious car that there was, but we had transportation that was safe, got us places. So most people are a lot wealthier than maybe they're willing to imagine as long as they don't hold it up against this consumer facade that says if you really are successful, you'll have all these things which we're trying to get you to buy. Sure. Well, there's a great infographic that I, that I once saw. It was, a, it was a comic strip talking about this exact same issue, but I'm going to take it the other direction. I'm going to say, even though we have lots of things, we aren't really wealthy. We might be rich, but we're not wealthy. And I'm going to base it around this idea here. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, it says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And so in the Bible, the standard of wealth is what you can pass on to the next generation, right? The standard of ownership is to pass on to the next generation. I, I once heard a, a business leader tell me, and it's really stuck with me. Uh, we were talking about our different jobs and our different careers. And he said, Steve, I want you to hear this. And he said, if you can't give it to your child, right? If your son can't come in here tomorrow, the day after you die and claim it, then you really don't own it, right? If you can't give it to your son, it's not yours. And so the Bible really says that the standard of whether or not somebody is wealthy is what they're able to give to the next generation. Again, this is this future orientation. But this infographic I mentioned uh, had a homeless man sitting on a curb, holding a can, asking for, for change. And he is pictured amongst a group of people on a sidewalk. You imagine a, a New York sidewalk with men and women busy about their days. And around each person, there was a thought bubble. And from each thought bubble, it described their individual debts. And so the, the young man uh, who's wearing his sneakers and baggy pants and t-shirt, he has above him $40,000 of consumer debt and $120,000 of student loan debt, right? His net worth was you know, almost negative $200,000. The poor man who sits on the curb, the homeless man, was more wealthy than him. That's next to, right? And, so, and then next to him, there's a, a woman, and she has in her thought bubble her home mortgage for her house. That's $400,000. And then they have her private car that she had just purchased for $50,000. And she had her consumer debt from her credit card. And she was worth, you know, negative half a million dollars. The man who was sitting on the curb was more wealthy than her. And I can go on and on. And you can see how the lives that we're living today, where we accumulate debt to buy things that perish with us, you know, your, your sports coat, your sports car, your sports team, these things that we put money towards, you can't give that to your child. So do you really possess wealth if you're buying things that die with you? And, and so the Christian, as they're planning out their future, we need to look at wealth as not just a tool for our own personal enjoyment, right? There's obviously a time for entertainment, a time for joy, the scripture tells us to buy wine and be happy, right? But the purpose of God's wealth is that this is the medium. This is the tool he uses to advance his kingdom. And he has made it such that he has given you the principles of how to handle your wealth, how to handle your business. And when you do those things according to his commandments, it prospers. And then when you put it back into his kingdom work, it prospers your family. And the kingdom of God grows with the institution of the family. Your tithe grows the church. Your business grows the kingdom, and the world sees through your example of faithfulness and finances 
that God knows what he's doing. And you made an interesting point about the man with the cup, however much is in it, is wealthier than these folks. Because today things are so backwards. If you're a person who has never gotten himself into debt and has paid for everything you needed or wanted with money that you had, you end up looking as a bad risk that say you needed some money. Who they look at are people who have gotten themselves well into debt. Now, granted, they want to see that you've paid it off or that you're paying it off, but we've lost the sense that the person who works for what he does and then gets it as the fruits of his labor is really the wealthy person. That's right. That's right. And it's also the person of liberty and of freedom. You see, what a lot of people mistake is, is they exchange their time for money or their, their money for education, their money for credentials. And they tie themselves into a system that does not serve Christ's kingdom. I can tell you a number of, of individuals who are my age who are going to spend the next 20 years working at a job they hate to pay for a degree that didn't get them their job because they believed that they were being called into a secular job that they didn't really care about. And the opposite is true, that God has created each and every one of us with special and unique talents, and he has put a calling on each and every one of our lives. And inside of that calling, there are, of course, times to suffer, times to go through difficult hardships. But finances and hardships in our day and age have been maligned and misconstrued. Perhaps we should look at our financial hardships in a different way. The Puritans and the early Christian thinkers thought of the idea of delayed gratification. In fact, all of Western civilization after Calvin built its industrialization off of the idea of delayed gratification. And that is this, that if you want something, then you can work and you can save your money. And then in a few years or a few generations, by delaying your gratification, by delaying your happiness now, you can have that later. That is how the suffering was to be understood in financial terms. We, we give up and we fast from the enjoyment today that we may enjoy the feast tomorrow. Our culture today puts that all backwards. 19 years old, we go out, we get a credit card, and we feast today, and we're going to pay the paycheck tomorrow. But what the reality is, is we end up paying three or four or five times more for that feast, and it disappears. We are becoming like the prodigal son who takes his father's inheritance spends it, and comes back later in life with nothing. And this is not just a statement on being a poor money management, but this is a cultural epidemic. We meet uh, people living in nursing homes who are eating cat food. We have people in nursing homes who are living on government subsistence of four or $500 a month, yet they've worked their entire life. But because they disobeyed God's commands to build their future on giving a wealth to the next generation, of building up biblical principles during their life. They are now paying the cost just like the prodigal son did. And unfortunately, there is not some great sugar daddy back home who's going to uh, make up for all of our foolishness. We have to pay the cost in this life for our financial mismanagement. Or have our children pay for it. You know, the bumper sticker that says, I'm spending my children's inheritance is a really good indication of people's mindsets. Yes, and you also well, and, mentioned about the college debt. I know people who have $70,000, $100,000 worth of college debt, and they currently hold a position that they could have gotten without their degree. 
Hmm. And so everybody seems to know that, except in very few cases, that their degree actually allowed them to get a better job. However, now that the chickens come home to roost, the current promise is to forgive all these people's debts and just say, you know what, you don't need to pay it. As a matter of fact, we'll give everybody education for free, which of course will demean whatever value there is in that education. But it's, it's a real stab at people who did proceed with a delayed gratification and said, you know what, if I want to be able to buy a house someday or I want to be able to get some extra training someday, I'm going to work now and save. Historically, there's, a, there's this connection here between education and, and the workforce. We look at the Great Depression and how that affected uh, the jobs markets. Now, if you read Dr. Ron Paul or Dr. Gary North, you can see that the Great Depression was caused by money manipulation, Federal Reserve. You can go into the economics of that. But the result of the Great Depression in the scarcity of jobs due to government interference was that the government continued to interfere and it wanted to remove workers from the workplace and they made education compulsory all throughout high school to lessen the amount of competition in the workplace. And so what we typically think of as high school education required for entering the workforce, even just a hundred years, was all government manipulation, right? It was all this idea of limiting the amount of people working. A 17-year-old a hundred years ago was perfectly qualified to go into a management job perfectly qualified based on his education and his age to begin his career. But we have delayed the responsibility of building wealth back and back and back. And now we're doing that same exact thing with college degrees. We're giving kids the promise of a college degree will get them a job, just like we made them the promise of high school graduations, giving them jobs. But these are empty promises. And we need to take a step back and look at what, God are we serving? What kingdom are we working for? And as we talk about inheritance, as we talk about building up wealth, there's certainly truth in that we cannot take it with us. But if we don't give it to the church, if we don't build it for the kingdom, we're building it for something else. And how many estates, how many tax dollars are going straight to government coffers when we die rather than to our children and their children? Exactly. I think maybe the better question could have been, are status governments upset if you're rich? (laughs) I think the answer might be most definitely. So let's get you in debt. Let's make you a slave to the lender. And yeah, we really won't have to worry much about you exercising your liberty. That's right. Well, and it's important for us to recognize, you know, we, we think of Bernie Sanders as being a new movement, right? This democratic socialism. And we think of, of his movement being something new. He's going to point out the 99% are being ruled by the 1% in this oligarchy culture of the United States. And here, here's this new fresh voice going to bring socialism new to us. But this idea of, of socialism or sharing man's goods or common ownership was very popular uh, around the time of the Reformation. In fact, the entire Anabaptist movement, which we now recognize today with like the Mennonites or the Amish, that was formed alongside these other Reformation movements that happened at the same time. They were radically socialist, uh, the Anabaptists. They took words like from Acts chapter 2, where it says all, all their things were shared and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Uh, they took that dividing of goods to apply to civil government and they instituted 
communal, communistic versions of their own Christian governments. And they failed, and people starved, and people died. But the Christians at this time responded to this idea way back then in the 15th century. In fact, here in our Anglican tradition, we published uh, something called the 39 Articles. And so if you're not familiar with Anglicanism, this is kind of like the Anglican version of the Westminster Confession, but much shorter. And this was such an epidemic, this idea of, of socialism, of shared wealth, of government control of money, uh, even under a Christian veneer, that they got a whole statement in the Articles of Religion. And uh, it's actually quoted in David Chilton's uh, Productive Christians, if you're interested in picking that book up. But number 38, it says, Of Christian men's goods, which are not common. The riches and goods of Christians are not common, as to touching the right, title, and possession of the same, as certain Anabaptists do falsely boast. Notwithstanding, every man ought of such things as he possesseth, liberally give alms to the poor according to his ability. So here, at this point of the Reformation, where you have the influence of Calvin, of Bootser, of Luther, of all of these men who are making the codification of the Reformed faith, they also point out that if you're going to believe in the doctrines of grace, you also have to recognize that the socialism that the Anabaptists are promoting is antithetical to the gospel. And they recognized that this was how governments had consolidated powers, by taking the private ownership of possessions away from them. And so anybody who has a family or a business uh, who is not living off of subsistence from the government recognizes that if you can control your personal wealth, then you can control your future. If you can control how your family is fed, educated, how they travel from place to place, then you control your own future. And so when we talk about sphere sovereignty or the, the strength of the family or the church, financial independence is a tool of dominion to prevent the government from encroaching on us. And so many of us have abdicated the role of caring for wealth and the poor and for prosperity to the state. The state will take care of it through taxes. What does it matter if I'm productive in my job? Right. So you were really talking about a governing class. And what the socialists like to do is try to make it a matter of race or make it a matter of gender. And they look at the governing class as one which has a disproportionate amount of, of the country's wealth. And so what they want to do is redistribute it because, you see, it shouldn't be in just a few people's hands. However, there is a biblical view of the governing class that Christians are supposed to be developing. If you teach your son or your daughter to work six days and then rest one, you're instilling God's plan for success and prosperity. If you tell your children the importance to not rob God of his tax, you're ensuring their ability to produce wealth, the kind of wealth that you said can be passed on to future generations. So rather than looking at children as a burden, you know, if I have too many children, how will we feed them and all that sort of stuff? The Bible says, you know, a quiver full, which would be, I'm told, seven, but there's nothing, I guess, to say. You couldn't have more quivers and just <laughs> put them on your back. The point being is we're backwards on so many things. And I think a lot of people are now realizing that the children they aborted or the children they decided to put off because they had other priorities, when they're older, 
they'll be very obvious how little wealth they have because they may have somebody who gets paid to wipe the dribble off their mouth if they can't control themselves, but that person won't necessarily love them and understand that this is part of God's mandate that we take care of our own. So there are a lot of people who have a lot of money who are very, very poor. That's right. And there's this, there's this idea of, of guilt um, that if you have something that you took it for somebody, or if a family is, is wealthy and they have a lot of kids and the kids are fed, that they've taken it from another family that's poor. I had a friend in high school who was really involved in like model UN stuff and really wanted to be part of missions work internationally. And she was a Christian. And this is how misguided this belief goes. This idea that if I have something, it's because somebody else doesn't. She would make it a point that on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, she didn't eat lunch. And she would tell me, I don't eat lunch on Wednesday, Thursday, and Fridays because uh, if I eat lunch, it's taking away from somebody somewhere else eating lunch. And this is not an uncommon thing for people to say, you know, give up beef because uh, we're saving the environment, right? There's this idea of a limited uh, collection of goods, a scarcity view of the world. But the reality is that depriving yourself of something is not creating wealth for someone else. Now, let me put it a different way. There's a, a meme I've seen, and it talks about a man who is wealthy who uh, buys himself a new private jet. Now, this is common for uh, you know, mega preachers and televangelists to do, to buy themselves a private jet. But it's also common for CEOs to get a private jet. And if I were to tell my congregation I've spent our entire annual budget buying a jet, I imagine they'd be pretty upset. But they, this meme has a man, he buys a private jet, and he's criticized. And the person criticizes him says, for the cost of that jet, you could have fed, you know, a hundred families, or you could have fed a thousand families with this, the money you spent on this one-time purchase of the private jet. How do you justify living in such extravagance for yourself while other people are starving? And I think his answer, which I'm going to say here in a second, describes what I think is the misplaced perspective. You know, this one-time giving charity versus building true wealth. The man who bought the jet turns to him and explains, but I did feed thousands of families with this jet. You see, the family that designed the cockpit and the instruments inside of here, they worked for months on this project and they got paid every day they came here to work on this. And the family that fabricated the fabrics on the chairs or the joints here or the person, the company that put together the wings or researched the lift of the airplane, all the constituent parts that required hundreds, if not thousands of people to put together this one plane. Those people were fed as they worked and built wealth. And that's more important and more proper than trying to feed somebody once out of a shared pot. Instead, we're looking at the other direction. We're building pots for people to feed themselves out of. Uh, it's not one pie. There's many pies. And as long as we go out creating dominion and conquering this world and coming up with new ideas, new businesses, drawing new territories, we don't have to worry about a world of scarcity because we are building under a god of prosperity a god who promises life and jesus says life abundantly and going back to what you said in terms of problems that we encounter or struggles some of the more notable inventions come from somebody trying to solve the problem of this frustrates me so badly or this is such a frustration to so many people and then industries are born 
as people solve problems. That's right. Industries are born and individuals are born. You see, what's the other dangerous thing about uh, scarcity thinking or even about class thinking that's really popular in Marxist philosophy is it creates castes, you know, C-A-S-T-E, like we have in India, of populations. It tells you that the woman who's on welfare in South Central, who depends on government subsistence, belongs in that sphere, right? Government says that she only is able to care for herself with government help and that she'll never escape. And so therefore, the government must come in and protect her. It creates a permanent caste of people who belong there. But the Bible teaches the opposite. It says that there is no caste. The, the Bible says that God's not a respecter of persons, that every nation, as they follow his commands, will rise and transform. So a biblical view of wealth, of rich, of finances, is giving people the opportunity that even though they could be born in squalor, be born of the lowest class, be born of little to no education, through following God's commands for wealth, for finance, by avoiding debt, by being faithful, by paying to the church his tithe, that God is going to bless him and break him out of human-made boundaries, whether they're financial or sociological, that there is no limit. And that's what uh, God has done throughout history. He's taking a slave people and made them into a kingdom of priests and kings. He took a people of tribesmen and made them into rulers of great nations. The God who we serve, destroys all of these worldly limitations that say where you were born, how much money you have, how much education you have, those standards are destroyed by a biblical view of wealth and prosperity. That's right. A shepherd boy became king. A former harlot is in the lineage of Jesus. If we don't know our own family history, and by family history, I mean the history of our forebears in the faith, we lose the fact that it's faithfulness that brings about useful service in the kingdom of God. It really isn't about what we have that we can spend on ourselves. It's our pursuit of the kingdom of God and the justice of God. And then everything we need is added unto us. So if we have what we need, the surplus that God gives us then gets reinvested in the kingdom. And it isn't about who has the most toys wins. That's right. And it's, it's important to recognize that there have been times in church history when the prosperity of the Christian church has actually turned nations into Christian nations. So, for example, in recent history, there was the pillarization of the Netherlands, right? Uh, Abraham Kuyper formed Christian political parties, and they created guilds of Christian workers, and they were able to navigate the direction of a nation by showing that those who are faithful to God's covenantal obligations, meaning those who were faithful to be the best Christian uh, tradesmen possible, forming Christian guilds who were honest and reliable, that that had an impact epiphenomenally, not just on industry, but on families. Families that were had good, stable jobs had good, stable family relationships. Marriages worked, children got good education, and that trickled down to the state. They elected Christian leaders. They had a Christian political party. And so by being faithful at the very center with what you do with your work every day, you have an impact on the family and on the state. And the opposite is true too. As we've said, when you are unfaithful, when you are an unwise steward, when you depend on the state, when you don't give to the church, you are abdicating huge spheres of Christ's dominion to Satan and to the world. 
And that is an offense against our Father in heaven. If we are his children, which we are adopted into his family, and we don't exercise our royal lineage in Christ, then we're no better than someone who has a wonderful car sitting in their driveway. The gas is there in the car. There's a key, but refuses to get into it. So we should be pursuing excellence and then recognize that God will make us wealthy enough in various spheres, whether it's influence or finances or family or whatever it is, to further the kingdom. Because it isn't just about us. We can pass on a kingdom heritage to our children. That's right. And it begins, as we see in Rashtuni's writings, at the individual level. It begins with individual responsibility. And that's what St. Paul meant when he said that we should owe no man anything except to love each other. Right? That's true in our relationships, but it's also true of our finances. That's why that St. Paul describes our relationship of Christ as being bought at a price. We've been bought and rescued from slavery. Why are we allowing ourselves to be freed spiritually? but then allowing our physical and economic lives to be slaves to the state. Christ wants to free every sphere of your life. And by following his commandments, he has promised a blessing and inheritance there. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. I'd like to recommend two books, and then um, I'm sure you're going to have books to recommend. But the first one is by Rush Dooney called Tithing and Dominion. And really what we're talking about here is dominion, that those who will have influence and will conquer in Jesus' name. The other one is called In His Service, which is a Christian call to charity, which puts the idea of giving in biblical terms, not in socialistic mm -hmm. terms, not in, okay, we're going to make you feel so guilty to extract your money. So both of these resources are really good and, and cover this topic. How about you? you have any books to recommend? Of course. I mean, if you're struggling with the idea that Christians are trying to uh, serve the poor, the idea that we can serve the poor through the government is thoroughly destroyed in uh, David Chilton's book, Productive Christians, in that he shows that the best way to serve the poor is through accumulating wealth in the church. Uh, if you're struggling with this in your own house and you think, uh, well, we're always in debt, we're always living month to month, week to week, um, is God's curse on me. I recommend that you get uh, a Chalcedon published book. I think it's Ross House uh, called Making Sense of Your Dollars by Ian Hodge. And that book applies this at a very personal level. Now, if you want to get into the theory of God's view of uh, economics, um, there's a whole series by Dr. Gary North on commentaries on the Old Testament. But if you are trying to look for a broader perspective. There's obviously uh, Henry Hazlitt has his economic books as well as Ludwig von Mises. Those are uh, important for us to understand how economic systems work. Uh, but again, it begins with taking dominion over our own dollars. If you are in a place where you are living under debt, open up your iPhone, go to iTunes, start listening to the Dave Ramsey show, get yourself into the, the, the baby steps and get your debt in order. Quit being a slave to this world because you can't delay your gratification. Start planning for your retirement. Start saving 15% of your income. Start giving your tithe of at least 10%. Then come back to God and say, what's going on? God's not cursed you by being poor. He is saying, be faithful to my commandments and watch the blessings unfold. 
these are all good resources for people. And then there's plenty of lectures if you go to the Calcedon site and just put in the word debt, rich, wealth, you'll find lots of resources there as well. You can't serve the poor if you're poor yourself. Just that's the, the end of the day. If you don't have anything to give to the poor, you're not serving the poor. So you gotta you got to build yourself in the church so that you can care for those poor in the world and lift them up. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in again to listen to us. Any comments or questions should be directed to out of the question podcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Steve. Uh, looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you. God bless everybody. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.